Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vakalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is the number one New York Times bestselling author, David Baldacci, who is out with the new novel, The Edge. It's the latest 620-man thriller. It's the uh, second in the series. It's available everywhere. And David, what I love about this character is, almost in a Hitchcockian way, he was a fellow who was operating as a normal life and all of a sudden got thrown into something that was totally outside of his wheelhouse. But can you just set up the character for him? Because I think he's so unique in literature. Yeah, so Travis Devine was an Army Ranger, um, and, and he served valiantly in defending his country. But he left the Army under a cloud, a very dark cloud, um, that's explained in the first book. And he feels guilt for that, so he goes out and gets MBA and starts working in Wall Street. Why? Because he hates it. It's sort of his penance for the crimes that he committed when he was in the Army and the guilt that he feels for it. Then he's given sort of an ultimatum. You can either work for this government agency uh, or you can go to uh, prison, the stockade at Fort Leavenworth. So he opts to work for this government agency. And basically he's dropped into places where there's problems and trouble, and he has to resolve it and try to get back out alive. Um, And he did that in the 620 Man and now on the edge. Uh, He's dropped into a little coastal town in Maine called Putnam, where a CIA agent, Jenny Silkwell, has been killed. And they have to figure out, was she killed because of what she did for the CIA or um, the hometown where she grew up and where she was killed in Putnam, Maine. So he's dropped in there, and he has to deal with the locals and the police and investigate the crime and try to figure out what's going on. When the first 620 Man book came out a year or so ago, was it always intended to be a series? Because it could have been a standalone itself. It almost was a standalone, quite frankly. Um, but then I went back and sort of looked at his, his, his character, and I thought, you know, I've got this guy has more juice. There's lots of different places I can put him into. I, I just sold this series to Netflix. They're going to make a, um, a bunch of um, uh, movies with Travis Devine. And what they loved about him is they can, you know, drop him anywhere in the world. They called him sort of like the American James Bond, you know, except he, instead of a tuxedo, he carries, you know, a lunch pail and a gun. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I, I can do that. That's really interesting because I can just put him anywhere I want in any situation and see if he can survive and, and figure it out and get back out alive. So that's why I decided to bring him back. He was as intriguing. And all the emotional baggage he had in his background, what had happened in the Army, I have yet to really fully explore that. So I thought, you know, I'll give him some more chances. Well, this particular story up in a small town in Maine along the coast, it almost seemed like it could have been an Amos Decker story. And I don't know if that was, if this story preceded the fact that, or the uh, idea of, of him, but was this always going to be a uh, Travis Divine story? Yeah, it, it really was, just because of the connection uh, with the family up there in Maine, and also Emerson Campbell, knowing the father, Jenny's father as well. Um, I just thought that it would make it more personal. Uh, both, you know, obviously uh, Emerson Campbell is, is Divine's boss. They were both military men, so they share that common background uh, and that allegiance. And sort of solving this case for uh, Jenny's father, who was an Army veteran and a war hero and now suffers from Alzheimer's and doesn't really know what's going on, doesn't even know that his oldest daughter is dead. They want to sort of do it for him. But quite frankly, you know, could Amos Decker have done this case? He definitely could have done this case. Um, but I just felt like Divine was a better character for it. I love the fact that it's set in a small town, and there's a reason that date lines in 2020s all happen in small towns, because weird things happen in small towns. It doesn't happen in you know New York City or things like that. But uh, the Putnam, Maine, the, the name, I looked it up to see, you know, I, I knew there wasn't going to be a Putnam, Maine per se, but I did see that historically there was a Putnam, Maine that's now something else. But could you describe the coastal town? Because I didn't realize how, how much wilderness and how much coastline there actually is in Maine. 
yeah, Maine has an enormous amount of coastline, even more than California, just because of the nooks and crannies and coves and all that. And 90% of the of the state is forested, so you know very little is actually inhabited. It's mostly the southern coast, Portland, and all the beaches down like Agunquid and Wells. Then you have Bar Harbor, but most of the interior, you know, is just all forest. So it's a very rugged, isolated place. You know, on the coast, obviously, the, the fishing is the main thing, and you learn a lot about lobster fishing uh, in this novel. And I, I've been going to Maine since uh, my, my kids were little, and we have good friends who live up there. My, my cousin John was governor of Maine for a couple of terms. So I've been all over it, found it a fascinating place. I wanted a place that was isolated and rugged and had sort of this stalwart, silent sort of people who live there, uh, but a place that had secrets, as small towns often do. And I wanted the I wanted the environment I wanted the topography to become a character in the novel and it really did. Um, it, it's you know, particularly in the winter that's it's a, it can be a brutal place. Um, it's not for the, the faint-hearted and you really have to be you know New Englandy hardy stock uh, to get through the winters up there because they're long and they're brutal. And I wanted Divine to sort of you know experience all of that. Um, but really the the environment in the town and, and the topography really became a factor in a real character in this novel, and I kept trying to emphasize that because I wanted people to sort of feel that viscerally. There were a couple of cultural references in here. One was Janis Joplin music, and another that I came across was uh, the Robert Frost poem, uh, uh, Two Roads Diverged in a Wood. Do those have some certain significance for you that they came into this book? Yeah, so Janis Joplin is probably one of my favorite singers of all time. I've just um, loved her um, from the get-go. And uh, a unique voice, unique talent. Obviously, she was one of the ones and didn't make it to her 30th birthday, along with Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix. Um, she was just, t- and today, unfortunately, um, you know, she probably, even with all the talent she had, because we were all focused on, you know, physical beauty and all that stuff, which, you know, she didn't necessarily have that. She was an incredibly iconic figure. Um, I think she came along at the right place at the right time. So I've always admired her, and I wanted Divine to sort of, and have that connection as well. And, you know, I I um, read Robert Frost when I, I was in college. She was sort of the premier American poet of, of that time. Um, and it's, you know, he, he grew up in the New England area, um, and he lived in small towns. Um, and sort of, I think, the philosophy that he had in life really um, brings forth a lot of those experiences. And... For me, um, living in small places where everybody knows your business, that can be really like, that, that's not great. Uh, nobody really likes that, but at the same time, you know everybody, and you know that you can turn to people for help. With maybe in big cities, you don't even know who your next-door neighbor is, and you don't feel comfortable asking for help. So there is, there's upside and downsides to that. I think you know, Robert Frost's poems and poetry um, overall spoke to that. And that's, that's why I, sort of, I wanted to bring that a little bit in this novel. There, there's a, a certain shell casing that is found in this book that that plays a role and so i always love when thriller writers get into various things about weapons because you got a lot of readers out there that are big in guns and you'll hear about it if you get anything wrong so what type of research did you do to make sure that you get all the the gun stuff right yeah so i over the years i've um fired a lot of weapons. I've talked to a lot of gun experts. A lot of my friends are in the military and they're very familiar with weaponry and all that. And it's all about just going and, and making sure and checking. If you haven't actually fired the weapon, talk to people who have. Uh, find out, you know, you got the, the magazine capacity correct. Um, you got the, the weights and the caliber that it fires correct. Um, and then you just hope and pray that somebody doesn't say, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, and that, that's sort of the, 
best you can do. But you try to do your due diligence. And I try to give people, I don't want to just throw facts and figures out there to show that, gee, I know a lot about guns. It's not the whole point of it. If it's important for the novel, it's important to sort of show a character's knowledge about it so you understand, okay, this person knows what they're talking about. That's why I tend to do that. Um, but at the same time, in a, in a criminal investigation, the forensics and the gun information um, is really important because uh, that stuff can be tracked, that stuff can be matched. Uh, so I do have to talk about that just to make sense of it in, in an investigation. Anybody who's seen you know, forensic files, they understand that this stuff really does matter in a criminal investigation. You use a literary device in this book, and I couldn't remember if you used it in the original one, but it's written in the third person, but every once in a while in italics, you'll see, you'll get an idea of what Travis Devine is thinking. And sometimes it's a smart aleck humorous comment, sometimes it's a very introspective comment about what's going on. That device that you use, is that a way to incorporate a little bit of first person into a third person narrative? It's exactly what it's used for. I mean, I've, I've started out some books, so I don't, I've never used a novel entirely in the first person. Um, because it's limiting. I, I love the effect that you can get because you're totally in the person's head. Uh, you know, I'm a big Ross McDonald fan. He was um, a detective that um, worked during the 40s all the way up into the, into the 1980s. And um, so that's, that's um, uh, Ross McDonald created the character, the Lou Archers I'm talking about. They were all told in the first person. They were fantastic reads. The problem is that it's really limits the flexibility you have to show other things going on outside the periphery of that person's thoughts and observations. And that was always too limiting for me because my plots tend to be sort of big and bold and unfolding and, and covered lots of different places. Um, so this is a way for me to sort of have the best of both worlds where I'm telling everything in the third person, but at the same time I give you a peek inside his thoughts by using the italicized uh, like statements that you just uh, referred to. And you get it. You get okay. Here's here's what this guy is thinking. Okay, it's a snarky comment, or it's an observation, or it's something personal he's feeling. Um, you know, there's some emotional stuff in this novel. Some of the women that he interacts with, one in particular, it really strikes him deeply in ways that he probably didn't anticipate. So that as a way for me to sort of get beneath the skin and allow the readers to peek inside his head. I'm chatting with David Baldacci about his brand new thriller. It's called The Edge. It's the latest 620 man book. It is available everywhere, soon to be a Netflix series as well. David, one of the things that I've enjoyed about your books over the years is I always am excited to get to your dedication page at the end after I've read the book because I know that you use names of people from charity auctions in the book, and people will pay money for a, uh, uh, to give to a charity. I think one of the Mark, was the Mark Twain house here. Yep. And I, I, f- I found one name in there, and I didn't guess the other two. But as you go about using those names, uh, one of them was the name of the coroner. And I thought it was so interesting that it, it seemed like it was such an out-of-place name for the book. And that's why it stuck out to me, because it's a, a French name. But when you pick those names, are they, are they tough to, to plug into certain areas because the names just don't match the area? Sometimes they definitely are, you know, and, you know, one thing about, like, I know you're referring to Francois Guillaume, um, you know, at least in, in Maine, you have a lot of uh, French Canadians, um, they obviously come across the border and families, they've grown up there and, and, and all that and become American citizens and everything, so, but sometimes it is very difficult. I've held names back for quite a few years because I couldn't really figure out what to do with them. Um, so I, I think there are three or four um, charity auction names, you know, the two police officers, Wendy Fuss and... Richard Harper are both charity names. Uh, Francois is, is, is a charity name. I think there's one more in there as well. So, yeah, you know, you, know, you, you get the names. You know, you can't change the names. These are real people's names, so you just have to figure out a way to work with them. And I've been holding back Francois for a little bit of time, and I, I figured, okay, now's the time to do it. She has a very prominent role in the novel, and I hope she's happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
you know, there's there was also a discussion in the book that about people, and it says, what's the last thing to go through their mind? And people all think that, you know, that uh, I think the, the quote you used was dead before she knew it in the book. And can you address that a little bit of, of how it, it seems like when, when the gunshot happens, people always think that, wow, what was the last thing to go through your mind? Well, they didn't even know. And how does that work? Yeah, so your, your brain synapses fire off at a particular speed frequency. Um, let's, I'll, I'll make up a number. Let's say it's you know, 0.01 milliseconds. Um, the problem is when, you're, you're, when you die violently like that, your um, brain doesn't have time to actually create a reality of your passing um, because it is shut down before the message can go um, from the, the violence that you've encountered. Your brain recognizes that violence and then telling, you, telling itself, hey, we're, we're dying, this is it. None of that could happen because the death occurs too swiftly. Um, you know, like if you, if you, if you, your uh, cerebellum is snapped, um, it, it, then all of a sudden the wire is gone. There's no more thought left in your, in your system. So basically people never realize that they've actually been killed because your brain doesn't have time to tell them. Uh, it seems sort of weird, but we're just a chemistry experiment. You know, we're, we're, we're basically chemicals and radio tra- frequency transmissions. And if something interrupts that flow of communication, then we're not going to know what happened. And so when I, when I say in there that, you know, she was dead before she knew it, um, it's true, just because the body didn't have the time, the brain and the body didn't have time to communicate. As you sat down to write this novel, and I'm sure it took several months, if not a year, to put it together, do you have the whole thing in mind, the macro idea of the doer, of where it's going to go, or does this just kind of come to you as you write? Yeah, this grows organically. Um, I had multiple options of who was behind all of this, and probably I was maybe three-quarters of the way through the novel before I sort of set in stone how I wanted it to end. This was a little difficult for me. When I first started writing this novel, I wrote 25 pages where I had uh, Travis Devine in a certain role in a certain geographic place, and I felt I just ran out of gas. It didn't, wasn't working for me, so I threw that away. And I wrote 100 pages where he had a different role in a different geographic location, and again, it was not working for me. So I chucked those pages, and I just walked away from it for like two weeks thinking about it. Then I came back and said, you know, I like the role in the first one that he had. I like the geographic role, the uh, location in the second one. So I combined those, and as soon as I did that, everything clicked, and I wrote this book very, very quickly. So sometimes it's a hit-or-miss kind of thing. But you have to feel that comfort level, that fascination level, and that level of, like, I really want to write this story. And if you're ambivalent about that in the early pages, that's an issue. And instead of sitting down and writing hundreds of pages that ultimately you're probably just going to end up throwing away, you need to step back away from it, think about it, you know, get your head straight, see what possibilities have come out of what you've built so far. And if it's not there, it's not there. Don't try to force it. That has to be a little bit inspiring, I would think, to aspiring writers, that you've written dozens of novels, and yet you're David Baldacci, and you're throwing pages away. Is that still a frustrating thing as a writer? Well, I, I used to think it was frustrating, but now I realize it's actually a good thing, because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm thinking about the material, and if it's not jiving with what I want to create for that particular book, um, I'm not going to try to pound a round peg into a square hole, because that's not going to work out well for anyone, me or the reader. So... And I also, you know, people ask, does it get easier you've written all these books? I said, no, it actually gets harder because I understand how, book, uh, how good a book actually can be if I just work harder. 
know, <laughs> I can see that potential out there. It's almost like when you're, you know, you're taken off from an airport and you're in the middle of a storm and you see that sliver of, of smooth air somewhere and you're just trying to get to it because you know it's there. When you get there, it's going to be absolutely incredible. So for me, the more books that I write, actually, the harder it gets. I know you told me over the years that you have just pages and pages of binders about research about different things, CIA, FBI, whatever it happens to be. you still have to refer to those a lot, or has a lot of this become just sort of second nature to you over the years? Some of it has, but some of it is so arcane that you've got to just go back and review it. It's almost like going back to class again. I, can, I call it my continuing, you know, CWE, continuing writing education. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go back and sort of refresh yourself. And plus, you know, the technology and information like that changes over time, too. So what I wrote about five years ago about a certain subject matter may have totally changed because things have changed and new technologies have emerged. Old technologies have been set aside as not being as good. Uh, and you have to keep up to date on all that stuff. So it's really a continuing sort of education about these types of subject matters. Nothing is static. When Travis Devine goes in to us, this small community, he's met with two police officers. I mean, it's a two-person police department. And I, I remember the old dragnets in the late 60s, early 70s. Whenever the LAPD went to a small town, the, the small towns welcomed the outside help. They loved it. Now it seems like whenever big... Uh, officers or something going to small towns, it's not a, uh, a pleasant experience. They're very territorial. Is that something that is just in literature that se- it seems to happen? Because I think it seems to happen consistently, but, you know, 50 years ago, the, the zeitgeist was that small towns love the big city cops. Yeah, they're absolutely right, and now everybody's paranoid and suspicious of everybody else. You know, I don't know if it's social media, but we tend just tend to be like, we, we circle the wagons now. We think outsiders outsiders are a bad thing. They're going to come in and try to tell us what to do and tell us what's wrong with our town. And why do we need them anyway? We can solve our own problems. So that's sort of the mentality I see around the country these days. People are just, they don't want interference from anyone else because they don't, they want to they want to take care of their own problems and issues. But you're right about Dragnet. They would come in and, you know, like, thank you, you know, you the guys are the big guns, now we're saved, you're going you're gonna to save the day for us. But in small towns like that, you know, particularly places that have secrets, it's not, you know, unless you're up there to go fishing or just be a tourist, uh, they don't want you to know their business. And uh, so there's going to be pushback, particularly with police officers. When you, when you bring cops, I, I was a lawyer for a long time, and I was a D.C. lawyer, but I would litigate cases around the country, so I have to go into different states and cities local counsel to admit me to that bar for purposes of that case. And I was the, that was the big, bad D.C. lawyer coming in, messing up stuff. You know, and I got a lot of pushback because of that. People didn't want me there. They didn't like me. They thought I was a big city, not know-it-all, and didn't know their ways, you know, and, and all that. So when I build stories like this, I sort of think back to my days as a lawyer, and I give the, my guys coming into these towns sort of the same treatment because that's what I felt, you know, when I went into these places. Would you get pushback from the judges, kind of like my cousin Vinny? You know, <clears throat> I, I tell you what, you better have been on your toes there because when they know you, when they hear you from D.C., you know, they hold you to a different level, and they also want to try to put you to your pace and I mean, humiliate you if they can. <laughs> so you better be ready when you walk in that courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> Do you miss the law practice at all? I miss the, challenge, the intellectual challenges of the cases I worked on, for sure. Uh, I like, you know, having to think fast on my feet and uh, be quick about stuff and being able to recognize a room and read it as quickly as possible and then, you know, use that to my advantage when I'm making an argument in court or with other lawyers. Um, so I do miss that part of it. I don't miss the fact that I had no control over my life, my business life. I would go in one day and think I was going to work on something, and then a senior partner or client would blow up my day and say, no, you're going to work on this, you're going to get on this plan and go there and do this. 
So I like being in control of my life. As technical as some aspects of an investigation are, one of the things I enjoyed, there was a scene in the bar where you had two men talking to each other and they were looking at each other in a mirror. And that was where they were making their eye contact, was in a mirror. Is that difficult to write those situations where they're just normal human interactions? And it makes all of us as the reader kind of shake our heads. Go, yeah, I've done that. I know that. But it's still something that's so difficult to put into words. Everybody just knows it, but it's hard to write. Is that a difficult scene to write? It is. I mean, it seems like a simple sort of thing to do, but it is. And, and when, you, when you do things like that, it's not just the words you're conveying. It's, the, you know, what people are actually thinking. You know, it's the suspicion. And it's also a little bit symbolic because when, you have a, when you're reading someone through a mirror, you know, you're not looking directly at them. It's like there's a buffer up there. And symbolically, I was trying in that scene trying to say people are guarded. People are, they want this wall up because they want to be able to peek over the wall and see what's there duck back down if there's a problem or an issue or if someone's coming at them. So, you know, the mirror scene, for me, sort of set the stage between, you know, Travis Devine and, and uh, the Silkwell that he was talking to, because uh, they were both suspicious of each other. They didn't know, you know, why the other one was there, what the other one wanted from them. And they weren't going to sort of just, you know, say, I'll, I'll tell you everything. No, it wasn't going to be that way. It was going to be guarded. You were going to have to pull everything out. You know, it was going to take a long time. Nothing was going to be given up easily. So when I, you know, when you try to write scenes like that, I could have had them just talking face to face, right? But for me, it showed a lot more about what I wanted to show about this town by actually having them look at each other in the mirror uh, and try to read what was going on. Because these days, it's 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 hard to read people, and, and I, I was also being symbolic because a lot of people interact now over, you know, social media and stuff. So you're not you don't really see somebody. You're texting them or you're posting stuff, and they post stuff in reply. Um, so there's like this wall up between people, and that mirror in that scene sort of reflected where we are today as a people. Well, it's another holiday season and another thriller from David Baldacci. This one is called The Edge. It's the latest 620-man thriller. It's available everywhere. David, another great offering. I, I love the, the exciting ride of this book, and I thank you for joining me again to talk about it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it, as always. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Oh,